What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. Today is a Q&A episode, so thank you to everybody who asked a question. I'm gonna do my best to get through about 10 questions today. I'll see how long it takes me, hopefully around 30 minutes. And before we get started, I'm definitely gonna butcher some of your Instagram names, so sorry in advance. First question is from Mr. or Mrs. Adam Soot, or Mr. Saddam Soot, I don't know. Uh, first question is, do you help people program for strength or only hypertrophy, and how might those programs look different? Now I'll say the answer is yes, I help people program for both. Mostly hypertrophy though, and if you were looking to take your strength very seriously like a professional powerlifter would, or somebody aspiring to do really well in powerlifting, I would go find a powerlifting coach. I'd say hypertrophy is my bread and butter. I really enjoy programming for strength. I think it's something that's super interesting. It's something I do like doing, but I'd say most of the time I'm researching, practicing on myself, programming for others in with a hypertrophy-based goal, at least for the most part. Now, how might those programs look different is a, a, a question that could be in its own podcast, and it's actually something that I plan on doing in the future, but let's break this down to a couple of categories. If your goal is maximizing strength, what you want to maximize are neurological adaptations. If you want max muscle size, if you're looking, if you have a very uh, muscle size or hypertrophy based goal, what you're looking for are hypertrophy adaptations. Now, both having both goals, whichever goal you have, is gonna involve doing the other one sometimes, right? If you're a power lifter, you're going to have hypertrophy blocks. If you're a bodybuilder, it's, it's probably the case that you're gonna have low volume or neurological blocks here and there. Uh, for a number of reasons we can go into another time. But it's not like you're only gonna do one style of training all the time. Um, and so if your goal is to get stronger, let's say your goal is only strength, what you're looking to do is maximize neurological adaptations. So things that will make you stronger that don't involve getting bigger. These things are things like being able to recruit more high threshold muscle fibers, being able to recruit those fibers with better synchronization, so better all at once. Things like improvement in movement patterns. So literally just getting better at a certain movement pattern, getting better at squatting will make you be able to lift more in your squat without actually having to have grown actual muscle tissue. If you do a good amount of neurological training, you can see some of your muscle uh, uh, twitch fibers shift over to a more fast twitch dominant. Sorry, your, your muscle fibers switch over to a more fast twitch dominant, which is going to allow them to contract more quickly and powerfully, which is probably, again, better for lifting more weight. So essentially what you're trying to do here is you're trying to improve your ability to contract more fibers more powerfully on command with better movement patterns. All of those things really have nothing to do with getting bigger. It's more, I think of neurological adaptations about, it's like you're getting better, right? It's like, I think of like a, a tennis player who, you know, can hit the ball, you know, much harder than he did 10 years ago. Like he, it doesn't mean he has more muscle. It might mean that his technique has improved, that he's gotten more powerful, more explosive, that he's taught his body, you know, he's a little bit more fast twitch, he or she a little bit more fast twitch dominant, better movement patterns, able to recruit those muscle fibers, you know, when they want, exactly how they want. And so it's like neurological adaptations are like getting better. Whereas hypertrophy adaptations would be about getting bigger, where your hypertrophy adaptations are about actually accruing more muscle tissue. Now, when it comes to strength gains, having more muscle is a, an important part of strength, right? It's like you don't see a twig figure lifting, you know, squatting 700 pounds, right? A larger muscle has the capacity to be a stronger muscle. It's like, you know, all of these neurological adaptations, recruiting more high threshold muscle fibers, uh, uh, more fast twitch dominant, ability to contract more fibers on command, better synchronization, like that's all going to be uh, uh, made even better with a larger muscle. And so if you're making neurological adaptations, you, if your goal is strength, it's still probably going to be beneficial to at some point work on muscle size. 
Now, the main differences between a goal, uh, one program, and we and we're looking at this a bit in a bit of a myopic way, where you know we have to look at like a year of programming. You know, we can't just look at like one single program because programs work upon another. There's potentiation, there's periodization, and so if we're just looking at one mesocycle for strength and one mesocycle for hypertrophy, what are the main differences? Simply put, you're going to see higher loads, less reps longer rest and less volume in that strength training program. Those are the things, more load, well, obviously more load and less reps kind of come together. So more load slash less reps, longer rest and less volume. And so those are the circumstances in which you will be able to make neurological adaptations the best because in order to learn to recruit those high threshold muscle fibers to be able to do them on command, to become more fast switch dominant, to to do it with better synchronization, you're going to want to use higher loads. And when you use higher loads, obviously your reps are going to drop a little bit and you're probably going to require a little bit longer rest. And obviously at some point you can't do as many of those sets. So you're going to see your volume drop a little bit. Now, when it comes to exercise selection, the actual, the actual exercises that you're doing, they usually differ um, in the context of, you know, the, the lifts that you want to get stronger at are obviously lifts that you want to be doing often, right? And so if I want to grow my quads, I'm probably going to do some squatting, some hack squatting, some leg pressing, some lunging, some leg extensions. And I'm not going to decide which of those I'm going to do because of which one I want to get stronger at. I'm going to decide based on a multitude of other factors. But if I want to get stronger at the squat, well, then we're going to do the squat, right? We're going to have to do the lift that we want to get stronger at. If I want to get bigger, then I'm going to do a multitude of different exercises, maybe not all at once, but my range of exercises probably be a little bit wider because I'm not actually trying to get stronger specifically at one lift. And then when it comes to your like quote unquote accessory lifts, if your goal is getting stronger at the squat, let's say you're going to be doing exercises that are going to give you the type of strength that will translate better to the squat. And so you're probably not going to be doing like, let's say you're a power lifter. You're not going to be doing a lot of biceps and like lateral delts. Like those muscles don't actually help you, let's say with the deadlift or the bench or the squat. And so you're like, okay, that's not where I'm going to place or those exercises aren't going to really have a really useful place in my program because they're not going to translate over to the thing I want to get stronger at. <sighs> Felt like a lot of information there and I definitely want to do a podcast on how these two are different. But the biggest takeaway, I think, is understanding that if you're getting stronger without building muscle, what you are doing are you're getting neurological adaptations. You're getting better at doing the movement. You're teaching your body to be better, to recruit more muscle fibers in better synchronization, in a better movement pattern where your body's moving more efficiently. If your goal is hypertrophy, you're trying to grow that muscle and make it larger, right? Whether it's sarcoplasmic or myofibrillar or myonuclear hypertrophy, you're trying to grow the muscle tissue. If your goal is strength, you're trying to make neurological adaptations where your body is now better at doing this thing so you can lift more with the body you currently have. Cool, next question. It's from JML115. What's the difference between a glute bridge and a hip thrust? I see both of them and I'm not sure. Wow, what a good question. I picked it. Um, <laughs> it's definitely something that's being talked about a lot and I definitely hope that there are people who are gonna listen to this and it clears up the air a little bit. Now, a glute bridge and a hip thrust are both good exercises for the glutes. They both load hip extension and can challenge the glutes in the shortened position, which makes them a little unique because all the other exercises that you do for your glutes, your RDLs, your leg presses, your lunges, or I'd say most of the exercises that you're doing for your for your glutes, your RDLs, your leg presses, your lunges, they're all hardest, quote, at the bottom. They're all hardest where the glutes are stretched, right? RDL, hardest at the bottom, where the glutes are stretched. Leg press, hardest at the bottom, maybe more more 
lengthened mid-range, but still not hardest at the top. And lunge is hardest at the bottom. I mean, think about your RDL. When you stand up at the top of your RDL, you're not doing anything. Like you could squeeze your glutes all you want, but there's no tension running through the glutes. You're just standing up with the joints stacked on top of one another and you're doing nothing. And that's where the glutes are the shortest. And that doesn't make them a bad exercise. RDLs are an amazing glute exercise, but they train the glutes in the lengthened position. Whereas the glute bridge slash hip thrust, we'll use these two interchangeably right now, they have the, they give you the opportunity to load hip extension in the shortened position, AKA at the top. If you think about a glute bridge or hip thrust and you think about that top position where that weight is weighing down on you vertically and you're pushing up into it, that is the hardest part where the glutes are shortened, which makes both of these exercises to some degree unique. And when you're looking for overall glute development or the development of any muscle, you're going to want to challenge it in different ranges of that range of motion, different ranges, different lengths. Um, and so that makes these two exercises potentially unique. Now, main differences between a glute bridge and a hip thrust are range of motion and tempo or intent, let's say, or momentum. And so for range of motion differences, the hip thrust has more range of motion. If you watch somebody doing hip, doing hip thrust, they're going to go down to a point where their knees actually travel back. And that's okay because that's part of the hip thrust. Now, the glute bridge range of motion is going to stop when the knee starts to move. So for a glute bridge, you're going to want your knees to stay vertical. And now that I'm talking about it, I would love to have, it's unfortunate that this is not on YouTube, but anyway, a hip thrust is going to have more range of motion. You're going to see people's knees travel backwards. With a glute bridge, we're going to stop the range of motion when the knees start to move. The shins are going to stay vertical the whole time. Now, why does this difference matter? Well, when you move your knees and they travel backwards, they are going to have to travel forwards. Now, that knee traveling forward is not hip extension. And so we are now making the body do something that is not hip extension. And if it's not hip extension, it's not glutes. And so, or it's not, in this case, it's not glutes. And so when we stop the range of motion before the knees start to travel, what we do is we really isolate entirely isolate hip extension. All we are doing is hip extension. And so it's not necessarily better or worse, but you could say that the glute bridge has a, is a bit more of a glute only exercise. Now, the other difference is tempo. So a hip thrust is usually done with more explosive intent out of the bottom. Whereas the, the hip thrust, yes. And the glute bridge is actually very controlled throughout both directions, but more importantly in this context, more controlled out of the bottom. And when we talk about the out of the bottom, why is it important if we're going with a more explosive intent or a uh, slower, more controlled intent? If you imagine somebody at the bottom of a hip thrust and they begin with a lot of momentum in that spot, what they have done is they've made that moment where the glutes are actually lengthened, they've made that part of the exercise the hardest. They've had to overcome the inertia in that moment to get the bar to start moving. And they've now changed an exercise that is probably supposed to be hardest in the shortened position, like we just talked about, and they've made the lengthened position the hardest part. For a glute bridge, you have a smaller range of motion and you're not exploding out of the bottom. So what you're able to do now is challenge the glutes at the top position because you're not exploding and building momentum. So if you explode out of the bottom like you might in a hip thrust, you are building momentum. When you build momentum, it requires less effort to keep something moving. Right? The actual building of momentum, the overcoming of inertia, the beginning of that movement, the building of momentum is the hard part. And so when you have a ton of momentum in your hip thrusts, you do change the dynamic of the exercise a little bit where it's hardest. It is now hardest at the bottom where you are trying to generate a ton of momentum. Whereas the glute bridge, because you have more controlled intent, you're starting to squeeze your glutes right out of the bottom. You allow the exercise to have its normal uh, resistance curve, which would make it hardest at the top where the glutes are shortest, which is probably why you're doing this exercise. Now, 
Both of them are good glute exercises. If you're listening to this and you're like, oh my God, I've been doing hip thrusts. I've been doing a ton of momentum. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not challenging my glutes at the top. Like it's not the end of the world. They're both good exercises. But it might be useful for you to take away from this conversation that, okay, maybe I'm gonna wanna shift up my, change my intent, you know, mesocycle to mesocycle where sometimes I use my momentum, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I pause at the top, sometimes I don't. And so hopefully that cleared up things a little bit. If you still have a question, shoot me a DM. We could talk about it with more video assistance here. Cool. I'm doing terribly on time. We're at 1230. That was two questions. Anyway, these will be a little bit quicker. I think those are the two longest ones. Javin's girl asks, will measurements as well as weight increase slightly while reversing? The answer is maybe. It's different for everybody. Some people are going to freaking lose weight and their measurements are going to go down because more food dropped their cortisol and they and they were in a very high stress, high cortisol, high water retention state and having more food, particularly more carbohydrates, dropped their cortisol to a meaningful enough degree where all of a sudden they're leaner, right? You hear about these people who are like, oh, I got leaner while I reversed. It's like, okay, you were probably holding onto a fuck ton of water right before you started reversing. You were on really low calories, you know, deep in a deficit, retaining some de- a good amount of water and as you reversed, you dropped water weight and you got leaner, right? And I say that with like the, a little bit of quotes because that's not what happens for most people. Usually weight's gonna increase as you start to store more glycogen, as you have more food in you at any given time. Maybe you're having more total sodium because you're having more total food and an increase in muscle tissue. And so those are all good things. Let me repeat, more muscle glycogen, obviously stomach content is benign. It's just a fact you're eating more. Uh, more salt, which is going to make your muscles retain a little bit of water, but it's intracellular water. It's not necessarily like, you know, going to be all this subcutaneous water that looks like bloat Um, and an increase in muscle tissue. And those are all good things. And so your weight might go up because of those reasons. And for those reasons, your measurements might go up. But if you're doing it right and you're not actually in a surplus, that then these measurements are actually going to be measurements that make you look better, right? These are, we're talking about having more glycogen in your muscle, more water in your muscle regaining muscle tissue back. Like these are all good things that are gonna make you look better. And so, you know, I think it's most common that measurements and weight will go up a little bit, definitely. But there's definitely uh, scenarios where weight doesn't go up at all, where weight drops, where measurements drop. And so I don't want you to expect it to happen one way. I think you should get comfortable with the idea that your weight's probably gonna go up a little bit. Measurements are probably gonna go up a little bit, but it's, you know, remember this, you can only gain fat in a surplus. So if you are reversing, all you are doing is going from a deficit to maintenance. So you any weight that is gained from the time you are end your deficit, from the time you arrive at maintenance, cannot possibly be fat. And we have to stop worrying about, first of all, we can talk about not worrying about fat gain, but if you're not even gaining fat, well then we, you are, ad, and, you're, and you're bothered by the scale going up, let's say, and you know it's not fat, well then you're admitting to yourself you actually are more obsessed with the number than you think. Because, I just, it kills me to see people bothered by non-fat weight change. And and again, even weight, even fat-related weight change, you know, shouldn't be this like be-all, end-all. But like, if you're reversing properly and you see your weight go up a tiny bit, you see your measurements go up a tiny bit, like it is by definition not fat because you are not in a surplus. And so don't freak out. Next question is from Rich, Rich Erehon. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly. My bad. Are there any stretches that you recommend after lifting? Now, the reason you that I'll even answer this question is because you added the after lifting part of this because stretching in and of itself could be its own podcast here. But re- stretching after lifting usually is asked in the context of like, is this gonna aid recovery in some way, right? This idea that we need to stretch the muscle, we need to stimulate blood flow, we need to stimulate recovery. 
this is not a thing. I, I, it's, it hurts people to hear this. I feel like stretching is like this cult of like, we have to stretch. I need to be flexible. I need to be mobile. Like, first of all, people don't even know what the difference between those two things are, but <laughs> this idea that you need to stretch after you lift to promote recovery, it's not really a thing. The best thing about stretching, the thing that is most helpful is actually that you might just be relaxed while you're doing it. It might be a parasympathetic dominant activity for you. You might get really calm while you're stretching. It might make your, you know, whatever, cortisol come down. It might make you, in, you know, transition into a more parasympathetic state, but it's nothing physiologically necessarily that the stretching is doing. Like you could just go do something else that's relaxing. And so it's not that stretching after a workout is bad. It's just that if I ask you, hey, why are you stretching after the workout? And you're like, well, to promote recovery. You're That's just not true. The only thing that could be promoting recovery about it that is worth your time might be that it is a relaxing activity for you. And if it is, well, then absolutely go ahead and do it. But it's not doing something special that is particularly worth your time stretching after a workout. Cool. Next question is from Laxbug. If you love running, how can you incorporate it with strength training? Again, probably could be a podcast in and of itself, but I'm going to try. I've made a couple notes here just to keep me on track so I don't go off into too many tangents. But the things that the thing that I want you guys to understand is like if you like doing multiple things, you right now I'm playing soccer a couple times a week and I'm doing a hypertrophy training. Like the more things you are doing, especially the more different that they are, like running and lifting are two very counter adaptations. Remember, you have a finite a limited capacity for mental effort, recoverability, adaptive capacity, and time. And so this idea of like, how, you know, how can I incorporate both? It's like, just remember, you have like a, a finite amount of those things. The more you spend on one thing, the less you'll have for the other. You can't be the best at running that you can be and the biggest and the strongest at all times. It's not possible. Like, just so you know, these these are very these are two very different stimuli. You can't have the best of everything all the time, right? You have a finite amount of mental effort, a fi- like literally a finite amount of 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 almost like I don't want to say use motivation, but like you know, it's it's the idea that you're going to really get up and get excited about your training. That excitement, you have a finite amount of that. The recoverability, the actual physiological processes of recover uh, of recovery, have limitations. There's a reason that you can overtrain, right? You have a limited amount of adaptive capacity. So now, you know, if I'm doing four days a week of running and four days a week training, I am adapting less to each. And that's okay because, you know, I'm not the one making the decision that you want to do both. If you want to do both, here's the deal. You can do both and you can make gains with both, but you can't make as as much gains as you would make if you were doing just one. And so you have to wrap your head around of, hey, if I want to do both of these things, I have to do less of each and expect less of each. And that's fine. And so let's say you want to do both. And let's say we're going to say, okay, something like three days a week running, three days a week strength training. I'll just make that up. We'll, we'll go with that. Things to note about how to arrange your week, let's say. First and foremost, you want these two activities to be as far away as possible so that there, if there's any interference effect, blah, 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 that it's minimized. Now, it's not always practical. So the first thing I'll say is it's probably best to do these on separate days. So if you could run on one day, lift on another day, run on one day, lift on another day, that's probably best for you know, uh, optimizing that finite amount of adaptive capacity and recovery and time and mental effort. And it's probably the best way to split that up. Now, if you have to do them on the same day, do the thing that you care about most first, the thing you want to primarily adapt to first. If you care about getting bigger, do your strength training or stronger, whatever your resistance training adaptations, do them first. If you care about the cardiovascular adaptations, 
more, do the running first, but do the thing that you care about most first if you have to do them on the same day. Now, if you have to do them on the same day and you can spread them by about four hours or more apart, that's probably better. If you have to do them back to back, like I said, do the thing that you care about more first for a couple of reasons. One, from an adaptive capacity, you're gonna adapt better to the thing that you're doing first, but you're, you're gonna perform better at that thing, which is the more important matter, which is why you'll adapt better is because you're gonna perform better at whatever you're doing first. If you show up to your weightlifting session after you ran six miles, like you're going to be in a, it just a whatever, you're gonna be more fatigued. It's not rocket science. You're gonna be more tired. You're gonna perform not as good. You're gonna adapt not as well. Um, and so, cool. Uh, anything else? Yeah, you know, I so I have a couple of clients who are in what we would call a concurrent program, which is, you know, doing two things at the same time. Just be careful of your overall leg volume and where you place your leg days. Because if you have not run much and you start running, it's gonna mess you up. There's a big eccentric component to running. It's a high amount of impact. You're gonna be sore. And so you might take those three days of training and you might do maybe full body or maybe have one leg day that you strategically place away from your runs. So just be careful of your leg volume. Uh, and that you're not trying to do a really high leg emphasis hypertrophy strength, uh, program and trying to run a lot. It's just like, that's a ton of overkill for your legs. And the last thing I'll say is fuel like a motherfucker. Like you're gonna need way more calories than you think if you're trying to run and train and you want adaptations to those things. And so if you're somebody out there is like, yeah, I wanna do concurrent training. I wanna run, I wanna lift. I wanna get the best, you know, I wanna get a little bit of both. Man, you're gonna eat, need to eat more calories than you think. Next question. Oh man, I'm I'm not doing good on time. It is what it is. Is from Leah Darsky. Hi Leah. And she asks, is it okay to use a wide range of reps, something like six to 12 for heavy compounds or is it better to be more specific like something like eight to 10? Now I'll keep it quick. This doesn't really matter it, because when we're talking about rep ranges, like if we're looking at the things that grow muscle, the factors that we need to be in check, we need volume across the week per muscle group to be in check. So am I doing enough sets per muscle group to grow? Number two is, am I am I doing enough intensity? Are my sets taken close enough to failure, right? And then third is, am I trying to apply progressive overload from week to week, block to block? So if you're doing those three things, whether you're in the six to 12, the eight to 10, the 10 to 12, the not using a rep range at all, let's say, and you're just doing tens, whatever, sixes, eights, whatever, like what matters is, am I doing enough total sets? Are my sets close enough to failure? Am I trying to do more over time? And if you're doing those three things, this will not matter. Now, the little asterisk I'll say is if you're doing, if we're talking about real heavy compounds, deadlifts and squats, you know, the exercises that you use a lot of weight for, your RDLs, your hip thrusts, your squats, maybe even your lat pull downs, whatever things that you find you're very strong at, you might be able to get away with a smaller rep range because you are able to make incremental weight increases week to week because you're using so much weight. When you're hip thrusting 220, or 200 pounds and you go to 205, that five pound jump is what? A 2.5% increase, a very small increase. When you do your lateral raises from a 10 to 15, it's the same five pounds, but it's a 50% increase. And so you might want wider rep ranges on exercises that you use less weight for because it's less likely that you'll be able to make weight increases and drop your reps back down. Whereas if you're doing a hip thrust, you could do eights the entire block and just add two and a half to each side every single time you stand in the gym. You can't really do that with an exercise like lateral raises or tricep pushdowns or something like that. So you might want a little bit of wider rep range for the lighter exercises and you can get away with a tighter rep range for the heavier exercises, but you can still do a six to 12, whatever, five to 10, 10 to 15. I think those are totally fine. Main point is that this doesn't really matter if your volume, your intensity and your attempt at progressive overload are all in check. 
Cool. Next question is from Caddy Luck. And she asks, how do I make my split squats more quad dominant or more glute dominant? Oh, I wish I had another, I wish we were on YouTube again. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> you first want to video yourself from the side and you want to ask yourself, let's, let's pause you at the bottom of your split squat and say, what does my front leg look like? Is my knee over my toe? If it is, we're working more quad because we're getting more knee flexion. Or is your leg a little bit more of a right angle with a vertical shin, which would mean more glute? Essentially, what we're looking at is what is that front knee angle? If that front knee angle is smaller, which usually means that knee has now traveled past the toe, we're getting more quad because the quad works in knee extension. So if you are maintaining a vertical shin and you have more of that like right angle and you have a little bit of a torso lean, now we are minimizing the amount of knee flexion and we're maximizing the amount of hip flexion and hip extension that we're gonna have to do and the glutes are what do that. So a little bit of a lean forward will increase hip extension and make it more glute. If you pair that with more of a vertical shin, like imagine what you're doing in a hip thrust. Like why do we say vertical shins? Because we don't want too much knee flexion because that's gonna work more quad. And so if you want, like the direct answers, how do you make your split squats more quad dominant? Well, you let your knee travel forward over the toe. Now what happens is, you know, people let the knee travel over the toe and their front heel pops up and that increases sheer force on the knee and we don't really want that. So often using a wedge, something that elevates your heel and gives you like superhuman uh, dorsiflexion in your front ankle allows your knee to travel beyond your toe and make it really quad dominant without that heel popping up because it already is kind of popped up on the wedge. And so for a more glute dominant, whether it's Bulgarian split squat or a, or a lunge or reverse lunge or whatever, we're looking for a slight torso lean and a vertical shin, more of like that right angle that you're gonna make with your femur and your tibia, right You're right on your knee there. Um, cool. Uh, do I wanna talk about knees over toes being bad? That's something I was thinking about. It's definitely not bad. Knees over toes is a myth. If you have healthy knees, which most people do, you're very welcome to go over the toes. However, it's when your knee travels so far over the toe that your heels pop up that that's probably not a good thing. So knees over toes is a good thing for growing quads. And it's why people have, been, you know, not been growing their quads for a long time is because they're definitely afraid of putting their knees over their toes. Put your knees over your toes if you want to grow your quads. However, don't let your heels pop up. One way to help this is to get a wedge or a squat shoe. Some heel elevation is very much going to help. Next question. Leah, how'd you get a second question? How'd you get a second question in here? How did I not catch this? Leah, second question. Wow, violating the rules here. But it's a good question. Is meal timing more important in a deficit? What about if you train fasted? Now, I would say a base answer is yes. Meal timing is more important in a deficit. If you think about this, you have less total calories, right? So the way that you use them is more important. And so that kind of just common sense wise makes sense. It's like, oh, I have less total fuel. So maybe when and how I'm using this fuel is gonna make a difference. And I'll say it does make a difference in the peri-workout window. And so are, are you gonna build more muscle physiologically depending on where your meal timing is? Probably not, at least not directly. I'd say indirectly it's a little bit different or at least it takes a little bit more thought because you might want to organize your meals in a way that you're having a pre-workout meal that is gonna optimize your performance. Some protein, some carbohydrate, don't overthink it, right? It also depends what kind of training you're doing. If you're doing like, powerlifting training, you don't need a ton of carbohydrate. If you're doing more hypertrophic with higher volume, you're probably gonna need a little bit more carbohydrate. So when you have less total fuel and you wanna perform your best, you're probably gonna wanna optimize that pre-workout nutrition. Probably more important when you have less total calories to back you up. And if you train fasted, whether you're in a deficit or not, if you train fasted, the need for amino acids after the workout goes up. It's like if you didn't have amino acids prior to the workout and they didn't get into your bloodstream for your body to use, muscle protein synthesis, all that good stuff, 
then the need for them after the training session goes up. Now, again, just because the need goes up doesn't mean you have to freak out and you have to have your protein shake immediately IV'd into your arm in the in the car ride home. Like, you can have some protein when you get home. All I'm saying is it becomes a little bit more important. If somebody was like, hey, Jordan, you know, I'm eating at maintenance and I train, you know, whatever, I train whenever. Do I need to worry about post-workout nutrition? It's like, no, I would say get, you know, whatever it is, 1.6 gram per kg to 2.2 grams. So something like 0.8 to one gram per pound of protein split over three to five meals. And if you do that, don't worry about meal timing. But if you're in a deficit or whatever, not in a deficit, if you're training fasted, then I would say, okay, you still wanna do those things, but it's probably important to just very least get in, you know, some protein, something like maybe half a gram per kg of body weight in the meal, in the post-workout meal within like an hour or two of training. Cool. Oh, two questions you left. I'm going to make it. We're at 28 minutes. I got this. Katie May Main. Hi, Katie. She asks, can you discuss equipment that looks cool but is low-key useless like battle ropes? <laughs> and I love this because, again, it matters what the goal of battle ropes is. And I'll say battle ropes are low-key useless, not because they are useless, but because they are usually done to look cool on Instagram. It's just cardio. It's literally just cardio. You're not building muscle. You're not, I mean, the, the way people use them typically is just fancy cardio that looks cool in hype videos on Instagram. Um, the correct, more probably more correct or more, the better utilization of battle ropes would probably be from in a power or explosive training where you're actually utilizing them in a more powerful, more powerfully, uh, more explosive way instead of like these like just very small waves that you're making for 30 seconds just to get your heart rate up. Now, if you think, okay, battle ropes, no real utility for cardio, but I find it more fun and it helps me get my heart rate up and my goal is cardio, then more power to you, dude. If you hear me say, man, battle ropes are just fancy cardio. And you're like, that's cool. That's what I'm using them for. I'd be like, oh, that's awesome. That's fantastic. But if you're like, yeah, these battle ropes really shred up my arms or these battle ropes really just torch my core or some fucking bullshit that obviously is not the case. Um, well, not obviously, I suppose is why that question is being answered, but not anything other than cardio. You can use them in some power explosive work, but I probably prefer medicine, uh, med balls in that case. So whatever, it's still possible though. And then I just spent like two seconds thinking about some exercises. I couldn't think of anything that like looked cool, but was low key useless. But I, at the gym this morning, I was just thinking about some exercises that people were doing where I was like, eh, this machine's not great. Um, the first one is the adductor abductor machine. Like let's start with the adductor side of things. So the adductor side of things actually works your adductors. So I don't think it's shitty because it doesn't work your adductors where you'll see the abductors actually, that's my issue. Um, it's just that you probably get enough adductor work. Adductors, by the way, are your inner thighs. You probably get enough adductor work from your lunges and some of your wide stance squats or presses, like leg presses and squats and 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 all of your single leg work. You probably get enough adductor work that you don't need to then sit down and do isolated adductor work. Besides, nah, you know, just thinking about what most people are looking for in terms of physique, like we don't necessarily want massive adductors. A lot of people are like, oh, my inner thighs, I need to get them to go away. And so people train the hell out of them and make their abdu their adductors bigger. It's like, well, that's not really what you're looking for. And so it's just most people using it. If I stopped, I always think like, if I stopped this person on this machine and asked them why they're using it, within 30 seconds, we would both agree, like, all right, I'm probably not supposed to be using this or, or probably could be doing something better. That's the more appropriate answer. And then the abductor side where you're pushing out, people are using this abduction machine to work their glutes. This does not work your glutes. It does not. Your glutes, your glute mead performs abduction, but not in hip flexion. So not when you're in that bent hip position, like when you're sitting down. It actually works your piriformis, and maybe you feel it in your glutes, but it's not the kind of sensation where you're getting a good stimulus. It's more of like a jamming of the joints where your nervous system is like, oh my God, please stop. 
And so if you're doing the abduction machine, you're trying to work your glutes, you're not. You have you could either do a standing leg abduction, so you're or sorry, standing straight leg abduction in the cable machine, which you know can be useful. I still think it's probably not in my top 10 things I would do in the gym, but uh, for glutes, but a straight leg abduction is at least going to work that glute meat. So, you know, it's the, it's just, it's never like, is this good or bad? It's just, is this something I would do with the finite amount of time and energy that I have? And neither of these would be in there. And the other one is the V squat. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with the V squat. If you're not and you're at a computer or something, you could Google it. It's a machine that's in a lot of gym. It's by Hammer Strength. And it's kind of like this, it's kind of like a weird hack squat with the pad on top of your shoulders um, with an angled foot pad. Um, but it's not a hack squat. It's kind of like a hack squat, but it's not a hack squat. And it's a pretty, just a pretty shitty movement. I hate it mostly because it's not a good movement, but it feels like it, it looks like it might be a good movement if you don't really know what you're looking at. And so I see a lot of people using this and I'm just like, you could just probably be doing something better. That's not either going to hurt your knees or actually work your quads better. And so the V squat, the reason I don't like it is because it's, it's a pretty shitty quad movement. Like you're not actually get getting to terminal knee flexion. Whereas we talked about with the that heel elevated split squat from before, like where you're trying to get a lot of knee knee flexion, like you can't actually achieve this in the V squat. And so now I'm doing something that's called a squat, which you would suspect at least has the capacity to work my quads. And you can't really get a lot of knee flexion because there's so much hip flexion. You're actually moving your hips back and down. And then people are like, okay, fine. Don't use the V squat for that. Flip it around and use it as like a, a glute emphasis squat or a good morning and it's like, okay, like that's possible, but I still don't think it beats, uh, let's say a barbell good morning. Um, and if you're gonna use it for a good morning, what you really wanna do is you wanna load hip extension from the back. And so one exercise that I'm looking forward to programming for myself is actually this good morning in the V squat. So you're flipped and you're facing inward, but I'm going to load behind me with the band so that I'm actually loading hip extension when I stand up. I give my hips something to extend into. So hopefully those helped a little bit. And the last question, 33 minutes, here we go, is from Sala Natalia, Sala Natalia. And she asks, is it true that lifting daily can raise inflammation in your body? Yes, and thank God too, because inflammation is an important part of adaptation. You wouldn't make gains without inflammation. This is a normal response to training. It's a necessary part of adaptation. So yes, it is true. Lifting raises inflammation, totally. And it's that inflammation that actually starts the, the path towards adaptation, towards new muscle tissue being built, towards those adaptations being built. And so the kind of inflammation you don't want is chronic low-lying or low-level inflammation, which too much training and not enough recovery can absolutely be a part of. If you're training every day and you're not fueling well and, you're not, and your sleep is not great and your volume and calories are not in check, it's usually gonna give you, or it's, it's going to contribute to inflammation that you don't want, right? That's definitely possible. But if your sleep, volume, and calories are in check, you're gonna get the kind of inflammation, the acute inflammation that we want, the kind of inflammation that's actually going to start that cascade that builds those adaptations. And so is it true that lifting daily raises inflammation? Absolutely. Inflammation is super important and it's acute inflammation that will cause adaptation. It's this chronic low-level inflammation that we don't want. And yes, if you're training a ton and not recovering, and when we talk about recovering, we're talking about the two main ones for me would be, you're not getting enough sleep, you're not eating enough calories, Yes, it can attribute to this chronic low-level inflammation, but in a bubble where you're not sleeping like shit and you're fueling adequately, that adaptation or that inflammation is acute and it's necessary and it's a totally normal, important part of adaptations. All right, guys, thanks for listening. I'll see you in the next episode. 
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.